Okay, hello and welcome to episode 47 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast family. Today's guest is a writer, an author, which is something that always appeals to me anytime I can pick a writer's brain, I'm happy. But this is a writer directly in my wheelhouse as far as lifestyle and interests go. Jim Ruland partnered with Bad Religion in the creation of Do What You Want, the story of Bad Religion. He also worked with Keith Morris on My Damage, the story of a punk rock survivor. His current book is Corporate Rock Sucks, the story of the rise and fall of SST Records. It is a page turner, and to me, it is interesting, borderline scary space to navigate, so I'm excited to ask him about it. Anyway, Jim Ruland, thank you for doing this. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to be here today. Okay. I mentioned scary in there, so I'm going to go right at that before we get into maybe easier things to discuss. But just knowing what I know about SST and being a big black flag nerd and you know, being a lifelong punk rocker, the first thing that occurs to me when somebody writes a book with the rise and fall of SST records in the title is fear of litigation. Was that a big ingredient here? Uh, oh, yeah. It was definitely you know part of uh, um, the anxiety stew that I was uh, having when I was beginning this book during the the pandemic. It's like, am I gonna like work on this? You know, while everyone is going through this horrible situation, and at the end of it, be slapped with a lawsuit. That was definitely uh, um, in the back of my mind. But in the front, I also. I wasn't, I mean, I didn't feel like I was putting myself in jeopardy. You know, it's not like I was ignoring advice from people who are saying, no, don't do it. Uh, every book, this uh, this book is the third book that I've done with the this same team. And like the book I did with Keith and the book with Bad Religion and this book, they're all vetted by lawyers. Okay. So they read through the book and they they want to know you know, if they're exposing themselves to any kind of uh, legal action. And, and the reason they do that is because you don't hear about writers getting sued that often because it's the publisher that they go after. And so okay. the publisher wants to make sure that, I mean, they're ultimately the one that owns the work, right? And they're responsible for putting it out into the world. So they want to make sure that they're not putting themselves at risk. And it might it might interest you to know that the the legal vetting session for the SST book was actually pretty quick. Yeah. Um, you know, either I, I think I must have learned a few lessons or um, the lawyers were more concerned about drug references and things like that than they were about, you know, what uh, action that SST might take. Educate me and the reader, if you would, how does one navigate that space? How do, how does one, you know, you say, talk about learning things. How do you cover your own ass? Is it when something is, is it a matter of citing the source material and thus, you know, sort of freeing yourself from it because it comes, it becomes a matter of their veracity or is it presenting opinion as opinion when it's been presented to you as such? I mean, how does it work? Uh, that's exactly what you said. I mean, uh, you, you use your sources, you, you document your sources for one. If someone says something, you said, they said it, you know, you, you, and you'd be very explicit about that. Um, that's just good journalism. I'm not a journalist really, but that's, that's to me, that's just, you know, basic fair play, right? Okay. You credit the people who, who said the things or who did the work, you know, to, to write those things. I, what, what I found fascinating about the whole legal process was that, um, that even if things are true, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't necessarily uh, protect you. So like, 
let's say uh, you and I, Dan, you know, um, I decided to write about how, you know, we used to smoke a bunch of crack together in the eighties. <laughs> um, okay. You can sue me for that. Even if, even though it's true, I mean, it's not true, but let's just say it is, you know, our wild nights on the sunset strip. You gotta, uh, you gotta, you gotta stop airing my laundry, man. <laughs> but, um, but there are three cases where you cannot sue me. That's one, um, you were arrested for smoking crack. And so it's part of the public record okay. or two, you beat me to the punch by publishing your own memoir about smoking crack or three, you're dead and uh, you cannot do anything about it. So, um, so maybe uh, some comfort that uh, for those of you out there have some skeletons in the closet that, uh, that someone like me might come along and yank them out. Well, let's move on from our former crack habits and my impending death <laughs> to uh, to some things about the actual book. I found it interesting, particularly in the early going, when you talk about you know his work with ham radio and electronics and everything else. Th this is not a work of malice. Like the things I learned increased my admiration on some fronts for Greg Ginn. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't really have an, an agenda in this book. You know, I always... I mean, I have a lot of love and respect for all the music that came out on the label and a little bit of insight that gave me the courage to go to explore this story, which I think is really fascinating. Um, I, I'm also a novelist, and so I love stories with conflict, and there's a lot of conflict in this story. So that that's kind of what drew me to it. But um in terms of, you know, my own, I don't have an agenda. I'm not like on team Gin or anti Gin. If I have any kind of loyalty and, and I do have a considerable amount of loyalty is to Keith Morris. Okay. Uh, I would not be in a position to write this book. I wouldn't have been able to write the bad religion book if I hadn't collaborated with Keith on his book. And I, I have a lot of admiration for him and we've become friends and I love Keith. Like okay. a million other punk rockers, Keith, you know, I'm team Keith. So yeah, if we're going to talk about who the best black flag singer is, yeah, I have a bias, <laughs> but, but coming into this book about SST, I am, it's not like I had, you know, so I wanted to like prove some point or anything like that. I just wanted to tell the story. You used a very clever device and uh, which to anybody who hasn't been able to pick up a physical copy of the book, and that's choosing to name each and every chapter SST versus somebody, SST versus hardcore, you know, SST versus Soundgarden, I believe, you know, whoever it be. That to me was hilarious, but were you at all nervous about that? Did you feel like it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in the investigation or was it an after the fact idea? You know, how did that work? No, um, not, not at all. Uh, well, thank you for that. Yeah. But I think, it was very much a, um, I was more thinking about it in terms of the pugilistic nature of SST and, and really all punk rock in the beginning. It's, it's an us against the world type of thing, right? Right. Um, no matter where you come from, you know, if, if, if you were, you know, drawn to punk, you were a bit of an outsider, right? I mean, I didn't even know that punk was something you could be. I thought it was, I just thought I liked weird stuff, you know, and I kept it to myself because I knew people would make fun of me for liking that stuff because it was different. So um, I, I think that, you know, we're, you know, punks are a collective of outsiders. And so uh, 
but in terms of SST and structuring it that way, very much so from the very beginning, everything Greg Ginn did for his band and his label was an uphill struggle. And he was met with either resistance, incompetence, or indifference. So I think it, it wasn't so much, I'm not trying to paint Ginn as combative, although I feel like he certainly was, but as a fighter who fought for everything at every step of the way. It's not just at the end that he kind of, you know, um, made some kind of turn, but he was, he was a scrapper. So I believe I already heard the answer to this on another podcast, but I would like to ask you, cause I would, I would like to confirm that, make sure it's not a false memory. You offered, uh, gain access to this process or involvement in the book. Correct. You reached out. Well, I just reached out for an interview. Like I did a lot of other people and mm-hmm. he did decline. It, it's a, I mentioned it in the, uh, as a footnote in the, in the, book so it's kind of buried in the back just because i wanted people to know that although this is squarely in the unauthorized biography category of book because it was written without the cooperation of greg ginn um you know it's it wasn't like i tried to shut him out or was not interested in what he had to say i'm interested in everything he has to say okay so sst if i remember right has somewhere just shy of 400 releases yeah Yep. So that's a lengthy evolution. And that's a, that's a, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time on the calendar, creating music and sort of finding a niche. Like I called myself earlier, I'm a, I'm a big black flag nerd. And there are other things that happen on the label later, but do you have a sweet spot as far as SST goes? The, like what you would consider a golden age? No, not really, because I think it's, it's, I mean, I'm fascinated by the story and I have, you know, the bands that I like. I mean, there were bands that I liked coming into the project or, mm-hmm. grow, you know, just from college and, and before, you know, bands that I like, songs that I liked, things, things of that nature from, you know, from Me Puppets and Sonic Youth and Black Flag, of course. But uh, I, I really like just the stuff that came out of left field, you know, the yeah. stuff that almost doesn't make any, any sense, you know, uh, like St. Vitus and negative land. And um, I remember taping St. Vitus off the radio late at night. And then when I actually went and cause just hearing it, it was so heavy. Right. And then when I went and, you know, sort of investigated the band, the label they turned up on completely caught me off guard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there that's, you know, um, I, I love that band and, uh, um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I, I'm working on a project with, uh, Evan Dando of the Lemonheads. Mm-hmm. And, um, we were actually in Hermosa beach a couple weeks ago of all places. It sounds like a, like I'm making this up, but we were, we were in Hermosa beach and, um, we were driving, we were going on, we were driving out to the desert and I was like, what am I going to play for, Evan Dando. Uh, I mean, this guy is a huge music uh, obsessive, and uh, like, like I know, like we're going to be going right through the South Bay. Let's let's fire up some St. Vitus because I knew that he was a huge. He is a huge Black Sabbath fan. The first example of extreme music that he loved, and he was blown away. He said, "It's like I knew about I knew about St. Vitus, but I didn't know it was like this." Mm-hmm. So uh, that was kind of made my week turning yeah. Evan you know, on to St. Vitus. It was a good call. 
So uh, chronicling punk rock, looking at the books that you've done and, and, and yeah, on your website, I saw that you also do fiction and I know, I believe you kind of came up through the, through the fanzine world. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's okay. my first experience of writing for an audience. Okay. So writing about punk rock and now doing these deeply investigated histories of specific bands and, and specific artists. I wonder, do you, do you find that people are, you can have three people who are in the same room on the same day and the three stories very radically. Like I, 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 I think aging punk rockers might be questionable curators of their own myths. And I don't mean that with malice. I, in my own bands, the members remember things differently. Yeah, I was uh, on a panel at the LA Times Festival of Books um, with Gina Shock of the Go-Go's. And she told a story about how um, when they were working on the documentary, like the only way they could get a story straight, it was by to have all the members in the room at the same time, like kind of piecing it together. And, and a lot of it has to do with uh, impaired memory, right? Not okay. like so much, not so much the forgetting that happens with age, but it, because I mean, um, punk rock and a good time go hand in hand mm -hmm. uh, until the good time mm -hmm. stops being a good time. And, you know, which was at least the, the story for me. Do you ever find that covering this, this music and covering a space that you grew up in takes the shine off the diamond a little bit? No, not at all. Because, um, long time people who read my column in razor cake for example will know that um that i write about whatever the fuck i want to write about it may not be about punk rock you know i, I don't have a uh, a mandate to write you know to make sure the word punk appears six times in every piece i write or something asinine like that you know i mean and especially uh i mean lately i've been writing about you know you know, I, I lost my mom during the pandemic. You know, I wrote about that. I, I've lost friends to suicide. I, I wrote about that. Um, that's that's where my mind is. And so um, the stuff I write for Razor Cake is sometimes the, the place where I do my most honest writing, my most real writing. And uh, and it's if it's if it falls in the parameters of punk rock, it's just because of the the relationship I have with my readers, if that makes sense. So uh, would you mind getting into kind of an esoteric conversation about writing about the craft itself? It's, it's, it's a passion of mine and I'm, I'm getting that it's a serious passion of yours. Yeah, I, absolutely. Okay. So yeah. the first thing that occurs to me is when I was younger, and this is probably end of the eighties, this was heading into the Rollins band era, not the black flag era. But one of the times that I interviewed Henry Rollins, he said something that kind of bruised me and I was, you know, a punk rock singer in my own right, in my own little, microscopic space that I could command, but he used, and it's not his quote, but he said about the interview process, he said, people who can do, do, and people who can't do write about it. And it bothered, you know, it was a good quote and it, it upset me as I've gotten older, writing is its own sword and its own powerful, powerful item. Even when it's reporting on, on the actions of others, uh, what, what space does it fill in your life and how did it happen? How did it become the thing? Well, um, well, let me go to the first part to that anecdote, because I think um, that gets used quite a bit, like in um, in the world of literature, mm -hmm. it gets twisted around to say those that can write and those that can't teach or something like that. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And it's just a shitty thing to say. I mean, I think when it comes to the arts and, you know, punk rock is an art movement and writing is artful. Um Anything that any anything that doesn't encourage you to create, to make, just 
needs to just go right in one ear and out the other. I mean, we have enough shit running around our heads trying to convince us that, you know, we can't do the things that we want to do. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, and also I'll point out that, you know, Henry has written how many books now? Well, I, I don't think it's something he would say now, but, you know, soft, mm-hmm. formative young Dan was bruised by it, you know. I think Henry, his reputation as a vocalist for Black Flag is is probably um, overdone, right, in, re- in relation to the history of the band and to punk rock in general. Like, it's outsized his place as a vocalist in the punk rock movement. His reputation as a writer in American letters is grossly... Uh, underappreciated I, th- I think he's a fascinating writer and um yeah it's I, interesting I, to hear you say that i think our opinions on that are, are almost exactly flipped which you know hey perspective is everything um, I, I get the logic in what you're saying i his, his era of black flag is the era for me although i do think their best record is the nervous breakdown seven inch which is your guy well i mean it depends on which day i mean you know <laughs> sometimes my favorite black flag jam is modern man which is actually a worm song you know off okay. of a, a loose nut so it's just you know right you know, well, these things but what, let's get back to writing yeah I love talking about what, what was this the well no so i, I kind of asked how it became you know your thing how it became your calling i mean did it did it evolve in punk rock or in a space separate of that and you were in the navy yeah yeah how does that play into it that's exactly how I became a writer because, you know, I was a terrible student, just an awful student. And um, I mean, I was, I started out good, but like, I don't know, I really don't know what happened and that caused me to lose interest and lose confidence in academics. But I went to a Catholic private school and, you know, where you're supposed to go to college, right? With those things. And I was near the bottom of my class and I ended up enlisting in the Navy when I got done. So it was not a very good use of my parents' uh, money. And, you know, a lot of people, especially young people who think about going, joining the military to like straighten up and figure out what they want to do with their life. Like one, don't do it. There are better, there are better paths that you can take because I left when I got out of the Navy, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. All I knew was what I didn't want to do. And I, that was, I was very passionate about not wanting to be in the Navy anymore. And I had even less confidence because um, of the way I was treated in, in the service. But when I got to college, because I had these benefits from being being in the service, that was really good. I'm not going to discount that. It definitely changed my life in that regard. And I took my intro to, um, you know, expository freshman composition. And I had to write essays and I wrote Navy stories. I wrote about helicopter operations and about, you know, throwing myself down a flight of stairs in the Philippines and you know, getting in brawls with Marines in Japan. And, you know, I just was, I think I was writing about things that were more interesting than what most kids are writing about in their freshman essay class. Right. So my, my professor, Dr. Tim Poland really responded and was like, Hey, you're pretty good at this. You should do more. And, but before you do more, you should read this, this, and this. And I was like, okay. And I was just a sponge. Um, And I just kept reading and writing and reading and writing. And it's, it's something that I, that that's my life is reading and writing. You push back against the academic end of it. And I'll say that might sound like a weird question. What I would say to it is I did a little bit of freelance journalism, nothing, nothing terribly significant, but I came to despise one document above all others. And that's the AP style. book, Right. (laughs) 
and I came to have virtually no affection for professional editors. Did that, does that structure in journalism? I mean, does it even rear its head in your life? Or are you lucky enough to write in spaces where you have pretty great well, creative freedom? No, no. I mean, you, everything you write is a, when you publish everything you write is a collaboration with the people who are publishing you. And mm -hmm. so Razor Cake has standards. They have a style guide, you know, and, you know, I can ignore it, but then I know I'm just making more work for the editors who, you know, none of us are getting paid for that work. So like, why would I want to do that? I want to be, you know, a good collaborator. And I, I think having, um, you know, that, that's just my mindset. Now, at the same time, like when for, I was a br briefly, I taught English composition um, at the uh, college level in Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. And I had a, uh, a student who was uh, Navajo and we're still friends today. His name Eric. And uh, Eric was a trip. Like he had read Clockwork Orange, Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange, mm -hmm. like 30 something times. <laughs> and he refused to use uppercase letters in his essays. And, you know, like for the essay on change where you talk about some, you know, experience where you change as a person, he, he wrote this time that he, you know, transformed into an animal. He just interpreted the instructions his own way. And he was by far the best writer in, in the class. And, Interesting. Uh, so like, I mean, I, go ahead. Well, so for instance, I'll just throw a writer out there. Like, um, have you read, have you read much James Elroy? Oh yeah. Elroy shits all over standard practices you know, and sort of has his own language and his own, I mean, the man has no fear of a run, run on sentence and things like that. Neither did Hunter S. Thompson. And I think it's beautiful. Do you like out of the box crafts people like that? Or do you, do you, do you, what's the central ingredient in your favorite writers, I guess? Well, I mean, I do like out of the box writing, but I wouldn't consider either of those writers out of the box anymore. Really? No, I mean, I think those are, it also really depends on like what era of Elroy. I mean, are you talking about like, what is it? White jazz with those, you know, real beautiful long sentences or mm -hmm. the latter stuff where it's just basically subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object, you know, I mean, both. Yeah, of you're right. There's, there's, there's different Elroy's. You're absolutely right. And so, I, um, I, I mean, I, a lot of that seems kind of um, amphetamine fuel. You know? No doubt. No doubt. It's just I, I had when I when when a friend first put me on Elroy about fifteen years ago, it was it was the largest abandonment of standard storytelling I had witnessed it, and it was one of the one of the trilogies, one of the American, uh, forgetting what he calls them, but you know, essentially those the, the the crime trilogies that keeps coughing out that mm -hmm. interweave history and fiction. Um, what to you is a is a corner is sort of a cornerstone, an absolute necessary tentpole to good writing? Um, taking risks is one, um, you know, basically doing some, doing what, I mean, doing what the writer wants to do and not, you know, following some kind of, you know, something, show me something unexpected, show me intensity. I also like pretty sentences, you know, I like to be wowed, maybe not every time, but, um, you know, but what I, I like different things, you know, from, from different writers, you know, um, you know, and I would say to you, like, um, or any reader, like, so like you had that transformative experience 15 years ago with James Elroy. It's like, well, mm -hmm. keep going, you know? Right. 
have one every year, have one every month because there's there's so much astonishingly good stuff out there if you seek it out. It's an interesting thing. When I was younger, I used to read three books at a time. I would read one piece of fiction, one piece of biography, and one piece one piece of straight up history, right? Now I'm lucky if I finish three books a year, which is tragic. Yeah. Well, I wonder <laughs> if the internet has anything to do with that. Um, Probably yeah, guilty. Mean, yeah, um, I, I, I definitely, like I saw with my daughter, I mean, she was a voracious reader. Um, and then she was old enough where she got, you know, a phone and, uh, you know, was, was no longer a compulsive reader and rereader of these gigantic, you know, YA tomes. Um, but um yeah, I mean, I, I love to read. I think it's an essential uh, part of, of, of writing. I hear, from, um, I hear from younger writers saying that they don't want to read X, Y, or Z because they don't want it to influence um, their style. And my response to that is that, like, how do you know if you even have a style if you haven't read X, Y, and Z? I mean, that's, that's how you have, I mean... Every writer has their own voice, just like every visual artist has their own line. I mean, people are going to do it differently. Let everything influence you, whether it's, you know, movies or TV or books or graphic novels or video games. You know, I mean, so, soak it all in. If you go to an artist studio, it's not just a collection of paint and canvases There's sculpture. There's thousands of books. There's all kinds of amazing stuff that you'll find there that seemingly has nothing to do with the medium that they work in. Okay. I'm going to take a second real quick to dance with the one that brung me that being trust records. Uh, you know, the current, the current, uh, vinyl home of your man, Keith Morris, uh, trust records does in fact, uh, back this podcast. It is the, the branded podcast of trust records. And if you go to their website, there's a discount for using the code trust Dan. O. I get a kick out of saying that even though I hate interrupting interviews to do so, it, brings out the record nerd and the narcissist in me. So pardon the interruption. Um, earlier, you mentioned the Dando book and what you're working on now. Yeah. How much would you be willing to share about that or even about the process, what it involves? Well, it, I mean, man, every book is different. Um, and I think that's also like, I guess it's like every artistic project is different, right? You can't, even if you try to recreate what you did the last time, it's you can't. So um this one was very different because, you know, we we sold the we wrote a proposal together and sold the book and uh, and then the pandemic hit or it was actually already in the midst of the pandemic. He was in Martha's Vineyard. I was in San Diego and we could not we could not spend time together. And um, it, it's been a really, really challenging book for that reason, because we spent the first year just talking on the phone and, you know. I don't think I'm giving anything away to say you can't write a book on the fucking telephone. No. Um, and it wasn't until the uh, vaccines came out and we were able to, um, you know, travel around a bit and we've had our ups and downs with that. Um, and we've also both been through a lot of shit, you know, um, his father passed away. My mother passed away. Um, it's, it's been an intense couple of years uh, yeah. for, Mr. Dando, myself, and a lot of people. So um, this has been very different, and um, you know we're 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 closing in. I, I think on on some stuff that we're happy with, and that's all I'll say about that. When I think about him in particular, but then a lot of people you've covered, have you ever sort of come across Scherer's remorse? You know, somebody 
somebody sort of bearing bearing their 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 realities to you and then realizing that they've aired some pretty sensitive or pretty embarrassing space has that ever been a thing no um i mean you often get uh people who would like you know i write profiles of writers and things for the la times or just in interviews in general sometimes people will be like um will contact you afterwards and be like um you know that one bit about you know the personal matter we discussed you know what can we have that off the record or but i also like i i'm i'm a sensitive guy dan and i and i kind of <laughs> a sense when uh something like might be inappropriate i don't write gotcha stuff you know and i'm not an access type of journalist or anything so i don't I, I absolutely understand what you mean by that, because, for instance, in, in interviewing certain people who have had you know, troubled histories, I find myself very wary of creating vulnerable space or of not handling their story responsibly. In other words, I don't want I'm not here to hurt anybody. And it sounds to me like you have that sort of innate sense of responsibility as well. Yeah. And and also, you know, we we create unwittingly can create harm by what we don't know. So it's it's you know, it's, it's always better to be a, a good listener than than you know the other way around but um but no I, I but i you know what i have heard horror stories from other journalists who uh you know about about those types of things about you know um i think it have what happens if people get um sit down with someone and there's substances involved that the next day that there might be some regret <laughs> and they'll be like okay you can't use any of that shit i told you last night and be like what you know and you have to <laughs> start all over again i've heard i've heard that from a couple of people but um but i i don't have that problem anymore i'm 13 years plus queen and sober so uh i might be a little overstimulated from some tea or coffee but okay that's the extent of it <laughs> is there a dream sub a dream subject or a dream book yet to be written is there a topic you know you want to tackle that you haven't gotten to yet uh, there are all kinds of things i mean i would love to uh work on a book with uh, someone in film someday. That would be really cool. I would love to, you know, I love horror movies. So something in that space would be really fascinating. I also have like some, uh, my cousin, my late cousin, Mark Patrick Carducci uh, was a, a screenwriter who wrote Pumpkinhead and Neon Maniacs and a couple other things. And um, so I have like a passion for that. Uh, people in the, I'd like to work with uh, someone in the visual arts, maybe someday. Maybe somebody, I won't say his name, but his initials are Raymond Pettibone. No, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that would be a dream But that. I mean, I think I would love for, I think he, I would love to see Raymond write a book as a, a, you know, someday. Right. And like, and just make everything up. You cover uh, his, you cover his work pretty in depth in the SST book. Uh, but he's, he's extreme. I've cut, co I covered one small facet of it. He is a very prolific person and they're, there are other writers, art writers who are probably better equipped to, to deal with that. Um, but no, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm excited about um, my own fiction projects. My next book is a, that's, that will probably come out is um, uh, a novel from uh, Rare Bird Books, a kind of a dysfunctional vigilante novel. That, that, that you telling me that serves my perception of rare books because they, they seem to me like they have a nose for what's cool. The rare, rather rare bird is the one that just did a, the three part, uh, Jerry, a Jerry, a autobiography. That, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Label. 
Yeah, they, they do really interesting stuff. They're based in LA, and my um, uh, I, I've known um, the publisher Tyson for a long time. Um, so it, it it was just kind of made a lot of sense. It's, yeah, it's called Make It Stop, and it's uh, punk adjacent. All right. Well, listen, this has been everything I hoped it would be, and I have really enjoyed it. And I thank you for letting me uh, not so much do a war stories interview as a philosophical interview. It was it was very exciting for me. Right on. Okay, guys, that's episode 47 of Dano Says So. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 20. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.